a big fan of Galileo, you could say to me, well, he lived hundreds of years ago. Hindsight is 2020, or in this case, 1620. <laughs> See what I did there? <laughs> if I'm not mistaken, yes, The so, Heretic. So, so uh, I had a few thoughts on that episode before we get into my producer's notes. But before we begin, I want to just address that we today are drinking Alpha Centauri Imperial IPA. So do you know what's special about Alpha Centauri, Mr. Producer? No, what is it? It is the closest star to the planet Earth and to our solar system. Only a couple of light years away. And it's actually a star system comprised of three different stars. Alpha Centauri A, Alpha Centauri B, and Alpha Centauri C. And so if we do end up going to another star system in our lifetimes, which is unlikely, but there are some plans in the works maybe to send a robotic probe out there sometime in the next century. If we ever do go, it's probably going to be uh, the Alpha Centauri system or Barnard's star, because those are close in, in terms of interstellar distances. But as usual, uh, we did an entire episode where you listen to me speak, and I still have more to say. Giordano Bruno was this uh, character that we addressed uh, very briefly, and there's also a dramatization in Neil deGrasse Tyson's program, Cosmos, where he talks about him. And in our episode, we, we just really briefly touched on him to convey the point that the Catholic Church, if you really challenged the dogma of the Catholic Church and did it in a very brazen unapologetic way, you were facing uh, the prospect of death. And that, that much is true, but I want to go on record here, Neil deGrasse Tyson, if you're listening, which I'm sure he is not, but I want to go on record here in saying that uh, I don't think Neil deGrasse Tyson did a very good job of portraying Giordano Bruno, and I think Mr. Tyson's left-wing politics sort of got in the way, and I admit that this actually isn't a very original criticism. The Guardian did an article on it. I think the uh, National Review did an uh, article on it, and it's essentially Giordano Bruno is really romanticized as a martyr for science, mm. even though he uh, was not a scientist. And essentially, a lot of his opposition to Catholic Church doctrine did not come from a standpoint of him saying, you know, as a rational scientist who believes in empirical evidence, I challenge, you know, the virginity of, you know, Mary, the, mm. you know, the mother of Jesus, or uh, the, the divinity of Christ or anything like that. 
Giordano Bruno had supernatural beliefs of his own, as did many at, at the time, but uh, beliefs in mysticism and magic, and he believed that animals and plants and even inanimate objects had souls and energies all of their own. So these were very much not considered scientific ideas, even though the line between science and, and astronomy and science and religion was very much blurred in those days. Yeah. That's interesting, because you gave a good listing of all of his different beliefs in the episode, and uh, he definitely seemed like an iconoclast for his time, as someone who was like, just willing to go completely against the grain, kind of knew what he was going up against, and then the Catholic Church in the end was like, alright, we're going to make your death look like the worst thing humanly possible to scare as many people off from falling into that. Absolutely, and to be 100% clear, I believe it is morally repugnant to murder anybody because of what they believe in. Right. And so I'm absolutely not defending the Catholic Church on these points, but I, I do believe that there are a lot of left-wingers and a lot of atheists that made him into this martyr for science, and he wasn't a martyr for science. He was a, a martyr for superstitious, pseudo-religious beliefs. They just weren't Christian superstitious um, beliefs. So you think he would have been marked as like alt-science back in the day? Instead of alt-right. Right. right. <laughs> uh, it could be. And he, he is, I think iconoclast is a good word to describe him because he was a, a very peculiar person and certainly was willing to think outside the box and he deserves all the credit in the world for that mm -hmm. and he certainly had a lot of uh cojones for lack of a better uh, slang term in that he was willing the, the catholic church much like with galileo they said we're giving you a chance to uh repent and sort of renounce all the beliefs that you declared previously and he said he said, no. He says, you're just going to have to, to kill me. And so he certainly had a lot of conviction in the things that, that he believed in, but I don't think a lot of scientists would, would come out today. I don't think the scientific community today would come out in support of someone who believed in magic and who believed that inanimate objects had souls and who believed in reincarnation of humans in the form of, of animals. Well, like the modern equivalent would be like someone who believes in flat earth theory and like all this other kind of stuff. Interestingly enough, I read an article, let me look at my notes here, it was actually a really interesting uh, internet publication called History for Atheists, and they were kind of debunking, they were saying a lot of our atheist brothers and sisters are circulating Facebook memes with Giordano Bruno sort of immortalizing him as this mm. uh, wonderful martyr for science, and they said, uh, but no, he's not really a martyr for science, and indeed not a martyr for atheists either, since he was not really an atheist in the, the strict sense of the word. And they compared him, I thought this was fascinating, they compared him to Deepak Chopra. Huh, interesting. Who uh, I guess is a big proponent of uh, alternative medicine, among, among a lot of other sort of mystic uh, beliefs. Uh, Peter Hess who was, uh, as far as I could tell, a journalist who wrote for National Geographic, also wrote a kind of scathing editorial criticizing uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson on that point. And I want to uh, take a moment to 
concede that here at Universe University, we are entertainers in, in podcasting as well as educators. So there are certainly episodes where we're, I don't want to use the term dramatizing things because that makes it sound like we're embellishing things. I'm always trying to give people a, a portrait of history, but I'm also trying to convey the, the danger and the drama that a lot of these historical figures faced. And that was something that Neil deGrasse Tyson's Cosmos does, but I think it it does it in such a way where he's he's conveying a certain a certain ideological and political uh, belief that's sort of on the left wing of the spectrum that it's very easy to romanticize Giordano Bruno. Yeah, I think there's there's a way of doing it where you're portraying the the situation as it would have been then and then taking a situation that occurred in history and trying to relate it to now and then trying to curve that so that it meets your your meaning of things um i and I'm not i just as someone who doesn't do the writing for the show but does all of the listening to it over and over and over again i think we walk the we do the fine line of walking just like portraying what the world would have looked like by the eyes of the people living out that experience. Absolutely, absolutely. And the people who live out those experiences, as you say, whether we're talking about the space race or the life of Galileo and Copernicus, those people do so within a limited frame of reference. And so I think we take away some of the audience's suspension of disbelief in getting involved with the narrative and the characters and the stories if we said, at the time, they believed this was the case. Of course, 200 years later, we would prove that they were completely wrong Like in this belief. We kind of just get into the mindset of people who uh, lived in a society, like Copernicus, who lived in a society where it was like, this was it. This was what everybody accepted to be logically and intuitively true that the earth is the center of the universe and it does not move right so uh yeah i think neil degrasse tyson engaged in a bit of revisionist history there which i and i I think he did it because in addition to be being a really smart guy and a popularizer of uh, science which i think is great i think we need more people obviously i think we need more people to popularize and evangelize about science but i think he also uh, like Carl Sagan before him, has his own political beliefs and sort of uh, an axe to grind there, and he wants to he wants to voice it. And I think Carl Sagan certainly. I think like any good professor, you know, we have professors in college or even teachers in high school who aren't sh- shy about sharing their opinions about the world around us and uh, sitting on their soapbox for a bit. And so I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. But when when truth starts to become distorted and blur the line between truth and fiction or between truth and your political ideology starts to blur. I think that's, that's definitely uh, a red flag in my opinion. So my second point here was just that, uh, to clarify in the episode, we talked about the potential of the Catholic church altering documents and altering specifically letters of Galileo that were transcribed because I, I'm, thinking a lot of these letters might have been hand-copied. I don't know how widely the printing press, Gutenberg's printing press, would have been used at the time. 
But at any rate, a lot of the letters, there is suspicion that a lot of the letters had been doctored by the Catholic Church. But there also, maybe I'm reading now, there also might be new evidence that Galileo, being the clever guy that he was, sort of conveyed that he believed they had been doctored mm. to, to villainize him, even though they perhaps may not have been. Mm. So it's still, it, the question is still very much open on that point, and I wanted to address that. And the final point that I would sort of say, my sort of final thoughts on the episode, having uh, written and performed this episode, for lack of a better... Orated. Orated, yeah. It's a good... good. You're Johnny on the spot with the vocab mm. today. But Copernicus and Galileo were two two men who believed in very much the same thing, or at least the same fundamental conception of the universe. But that being said, they were opposite sort of personalities that were as different from each other as you could possibly imagine in the mm. sense that Copernicus was a person whose self-confidence was so low that he said, I shouldn't even publish this because he showed it to a, his manuscript to a few trusted friends, but he said, I could be humiliated, I could get in big trouble, and I don't think I should even publish this. And he could very well have gone to his death without having published it, and it could be uh, in a box or, or an archive somewhere gathering dust and disintegrating, if not for this guy, uh, Redicus, who... Uh, actually, reading into the historical record, Redicus, the uh, professor who convinced Copernicus to publish, was uh, probably a pretty bad guy. I think really? he, I think he was actually so. Uh, without getting into it too much, I think he might have been a rapist. From some, from some of the historical uh, records that that I sort of looked over, but putting Redicus aside, Copernicus eventually published on his deathbed, and. Galileo was this guy who was the the on the the other end of the spectrum, the opposite of Copernicus, and that mm -hmm. Galileo was so confident he was willing to say to the to the Catholic Church, "I'm right, you're wrong," and and to the Pope, who was a friend of his, like, "By the way, your position is absolutely idiotic," and to just give the middle finger to the Pope at the time. I respect uh, Copernicus for dedicating his writings to the Pope, too. Yeah, and Copernicus, I think, being a Polish priest, was very much trying to be careful, and when he finally did decide to publish, to say, look, I'm not against God, I'm not against the Church, I am a member of this Church, I've been a servant of this Church, and I'm dedicating this book to the Pope, in the hopes that we can all move forward together and see the truth. Mm -hmm. And maybe if Copernicus had done it 30 or 40 years earlier, who knows yeah. what would have come of it. The other thing is, you know, in looking at the... I don't look very closely at the personal and private lives of a lot of the, the historical figures that we cover, because if we delve too deeply into the private and personal affairs of the individuals that we're covering on here, then you could add another 30 minutes or another hour to the podcast... And we're going to slow down the whole the whole point, which is educating people about space exploration and astronomy. N you know, do we really necessarily need to know about someone's illegitimate children or about their ex-wives or about, you know, all these things? 
it's like uh, it's like re- the the notion that Redicus, you know, this this guy who was a student of Copernicus, maybe may have been the first Copernican, so to speak, who believed the ideas of Copernicus. Mm-hmm. He could have been a really nasty guy. Yeah. But there, there's just not time, enough time, in my opinion, to go into a lot of these things if they don't pertain directly to the story as, as it works out. But what I would say about Galileo and Copernicus, just on a, on a personal level, I, mean, I think it's interesting that you say that you, you really respect Copernicus, because I think all of us in our day-to-day lives need to find some sort of middle path between Copernicus and Galileo. Somewhere between saying, gosh, I have so little self-confidence, I don't even think I should open my mouth and speak my my voice and my voice my ideas mm. and speak my beliefs. And the other extreme where it's like, I'm right and everybody else is clearly wrong and everybody needs to realize just how idiotic they are, just what a bunch of assholes they are and i'm you know i'm i'll tell you if you're a dumbass and i think you're a dumbass yeah. that's you know that's also might not be helpful because you're going to encounter so much opposition in in your work that people aren't going to listen to you uh, even even if you are right copernicus on a side note uh i believe he was a he was a priest sworn to celibacy and he had an affair and yeah. uh had 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 a very steamy relationship with a woman he was not married to. So I think that might've influenced his decision not to publish. Cause he was like, well, if anyone's looking for a skeleton in my closet, it's right there. Mm-hmm. It's one of the, uh, the interesting things about be, being a young, like in age, a younger human being. Cause a lot of the discoveries that he made, the, the writing was written when he was in like middle aged. And so he had the writings prepared. He had done the research when he was younger, but then never public didn't publish it until he was on base, essentially his deathbed. He didn't sign the book essentially until he almost died. And the funny thing is, it has more validity because he's an older man, even though all the work was conducted when he was a young man, and he had all the answers already when he was young. And so it's one of those strange things where it makes you wonder. What could he have accomplished if he had just been able to put that out there? But then, like, the times are completely different. He, Like you said, he, he was looking at persecution almost guaranteed. And it's the optics on punishing a young man are a lot better than punishing an old man. You know, you you make a profound point because this is exactly the reason that they later commuted Galileo's sentence and said, we're going to commute your sentence. You can have life under house arrest, which is still a a terrible, terrible way to go. But they they said, well, you're old, you're enfeebled. We're not going to throw you in a dungeon. We'll let you go. We'll let you go home. But you better not, (laughs) you better not publish anything else or go anywhere. Right. On, uh, On a side note, I have to say, I... I once went with a friend of mine to a, a friend of a friend's house in uh, years ago, and this guy, of course, he, he's like, ah, we're going to go for a little get-together, we're going to have a drink, whatever, and I found out after the fact that the person whose home we were at, he had an ankle bracelet, and he was on house arrest, and it was really interesting that the he had a good lawyer, and the judge had, I think it was... Uh, 
I think it might have been drunken disorderly conduct or something like that, where he had gotten into a bar fight or something like that. <laughs> and so I was speaking with this guy. I said, well, you know, Galileo was was under house arrest. And he says, yeah. He says, I, I really thought I got off easy. He says, but I'm 20 days in now, and it's starting to mess with my head a little bit. Mm. Yeah. And And he said... Someone stepped out onto the porch to have a cigarette at one point in the night, like his back porch in his backyard. And I said to him, I said, oh, I guess you don't smoke. And he goes, no, I smoke. And I said, oh, so you don't don't smoke that often? He goes, I'm not allowed. I shouldn't be I, not allowed to go out on my back porch. I said, well, you've got the ankle bracelet. They could see. He's like, I'm not allowed to leave the house. I'm like, you can't sit out in your backyard. He's like, I, I don't think I'm allowed. And he was really adamant. He was like, no, I can't. Wow. And to me, it was it was fascinating talking to this guy where after 20 days at home, he was like, I'm, I'm starting to go a little stir crazy. I'm really, I don't know. Hmm. Interesting. Well, I guess in that scenario, you just keep inviting your friends over and keep having parties every night. So then. <laughs> yeah. You always have company. Yeah. Um, on a side note, I was going to say it's interesting that you bring up about Copernicus and you say, well, if only he had continued his career, if only he had published mm -hmm. his ideas. What happened with Galileo was kind of interesting in that he published his ideas and the Catholic Church said, no, 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 you can't do that. And they, and they said, in fact, we're going to forbid you to do anything about Copernicus or to publish anything about Copernicus or the uh, heliocentric model of the universe. And... We're just going to say, don't talk about that anymore. And so Galileo went in a different direction and explored a lot of other things in astronomy and science, which it, some of the things that he explored were very interesting. Some of it, you know, some of his ideas about uh, falling objects became a very important, uh, very important to Sir Isaac Newton later on and very important to science in general. But some of, as we talk about in the podcast, some of his ideas turned out to be BS. Some of his ideas turned out to be a little uh, silly. He believed that comets were just an optical illusion, a phenomenon of light. It turned out that comets were actually physical objects. And you could say, well, Galileo lived in the 1600s. He didn't know. But there were other astronomers at the time who said, no, we think that planets are physical objects and comets are physical objects mm -hmm. as well. And this is, so he was going against the grain in a lot of areas. And so Galileo, for as brilliant as he was, there was a lot of stuff that he got wrong. Mm -hmm. Okay, so easily, just while we're on the subject of Copernicus, you mentioned, and this really has nothing to do with the achievements, but mostly to do with the time and what it was like for them as me being a student again at the ripe old age of 29. Um... I found it fascinating that Catholic universities had a requirement for seven major subjects that you had to be an expert in, or I, I don't know, I'm not totally versed on what constituted being like understood or, or having learned that, that piece of education, but you mentioned that one of them was astronomy. Yes. And that's fascinating to me, to to become basically a priest, you would have had to go through the understanding of how the heavens work. 
Absolutely, absolutely. And so in each episode, what we're doing now is we're trying to put links in the, the little description box. If you're listening to this podcast, you might not pay much attention to the little description box that we have down below, but we're trying to put footnotes and sources and lots of good content like that. So if you ever want to learn more about where we're getting our information or what our sources are for some of this stuff, uh, the Space Race series and this most recent episode, we're always going to have a little, a little, I guess you would call it bibliography down down at the end. And so one of the things that you'll see for the in the script description or after the description of the uh, the heretic episode is uh, a BBC special, which I think might still be available on YouTube. I think it was from like the 70s or the 80s about the university in, I believe it's modern-day Poland. I think it might have been the Soviet Union at the time the the special was made. But it was, it was very interesting to see this environment with these massive cathedrals in this place that was a, a big hub for trade, Frombork, I mm-hmm. think it was called. I think I had to, to practice so I didn't pronounce it Fromborg. But it's uh, Frombork, I believe, is, is how it's pronounced. And uh, Catholic universities at, at the time were very interesting. And I have to say, I give a lot of credit to the Catholic Church. It's sort of a double-edged sword in the fact that we can villainize the Catholic Church as, as an institution and talk about the Inquisition and talk about how they treated Galileo. But at, at the end of the day, they went to great lengths to train astronomers and to train people in what you know, I use the word science with air quotes very, very loosely, but to educate people about what science was. And priests were not ignorant people. And in fact, there's there's evidence, I'm not a great historian of ancient Euro- European history, but there's evidence that after the fall of the Roman Empire during the Middle Ages, that the, that members of the Catholic Church and cardinals and bishops and priests and monks were among some of the most learned people in the population because you had you, know, you had peasants and you had knights in shining armor and we had this era of feudalism, but that what little knowledge remained was sort of archived in churches and cathedrals and that that survived throughout the Dark Ages and the Middle Ages. And to your point about uh, Copernicus and his time in school as, as a young man, the Catholic Church believed very strongly that their vision of the heavens was very closely aligned to what was written in the Bible. And the works of Aristotle and Ptolemy, I actually had to practice saying that one aloud too because I kept saying Ptolemy. (laughs) It's a silent P. but Like pterodactyl. Just like pterodactyl. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Anyway... (laughs) um, (laughs) The Catholic Church believed that by studying the heavens, by looking up uh, above our heads, and, and keep in mind that they were seeing a sky with no light pollution. Maybe not in Frombork, because they were, they were on, the, on the coastline, there was lots of cloud cover, but whenever the stars came out, you were seeing the night sky with thousands upon thousands of stars. And here where we are, uh, recording this in Seattle, you can see stars, but it's very it's very much obscured by all the light pollution that we and, see. And we bring it up almost every single episode, just how incredibly amazing it is 
if, mean, you, if you've never been camping or into a rural area, some people have not. Yeah, just being in a place where there is no light pollution, it's it's very strange. You feel like you're in a uh, in a weird astral snow globe where there are just thousands of stars, and you see. I the first time I saw it, I was in Joshua Tree. Where is that? In in the desert of South Cal- Southern California. Okay. And it blew me away. Because you could see... I had never been able to see in real life. Had you never been camping before? I had in Colorado, but there's still a lot of light pollution, even in the mountains. But you're so far out in, in Joshua Tree that there really is no light pollution. I mean, you've got Vegas, and then you've got L.A. and San Diego, but it's all too far away. They have maps on the internet which are really fascinating with different shades of color and you can see where the least light pollution in the world is and where the most light pollution of course new york los angeles chicago you have these big blotches of color on the map but the darkest areas with you know the least light pollution you have areas in uh, nebraska north dakota montana areas in uh, sub-saharan africa uh, places mongolia siberia north korea North Korea, yeah, (laughs) sadly because they don't have a lot of electricity. But I I tell people this story a lot, and I don't know if I've ever shared it on our After Talks before, but working at the Fisk Planetarium in Boulder, Colorado, we had this great feature where we could just hit a switch, and the, the sky that we were looking at at the start of every presentation, at least the presentations that I gave, was a model of the night sky in Boulder. And Boulder, Colorado, Denver, Colorado fairly high population, a lot of light pollution, and you could just throw a switch, and a couple of seconds later, you would see thousands of stars appear above your head, and I always liked to go camping as a kid. I've seen the night sky this way a handful of times, even though I grew up in suburbia, but every time we hit that switch, guaranteed, whether there were 10 people in the audience or whether there were 100 people in the audience, Somebody, some individual or some group of people you could hear going, (gasps) like just gasped. Mm -hmm. And they literally gasped because they were so awestruck by the sight that they saw above their heads. And they came into the theater seeing a model of the night sky as they saw it above. So we start talking about the night sky and stars and planets and everybody kind of bobs their heads because they're like, oh, yeah, this is what the night sky looks like in Denver, Colorado. This is yeah, I've seen this before. No big deal. Then you throw the switch, and and you go from having maybe 50 stars visible to 4,000 stars visible. Mm. There, there's something like four or 5,000 stars visible in the northern hemisphere and then another four or 5,000 in the southern hemisphere. So if you could see stars in both hemispheres, you'd be seeing about a total of 10,000 stars. And that's, that's a pathetic... A pathetically small number in comparison to the number of stars that there actually are in our galaxy, of course. But anyway. The thing that really threw me, though, when I saw it for the first time in real life was not, was the stars initially, but the ability to see, and I don't know, the, the like the Milky Way swirl or what. Absolutely. That, because I had never been able to see that in real life because of the light pollution, but being able to see like a purpley blue 
it's that blew my mind and and realizing how like because i remember standing outside and i remember over the course of being outside seeing maybe one or two you know falling stars and being like wow this happens way more frequently than i'm able to see normally just falling stars you know absolutely absolutely or shooting stars i think is the the, the correct term. Well, and of course, they're not stars at all. But interestingly enough, this is something that I thought about in writing the episode, is that our our very language is still tied up in an ancient conception of the cosmos. And that we talk about this in one of our upcoming episodes. Uh, in just two or three episodes' time, we talk about uh, asteroids. And aster comes from the word star. And asteroids were, were star-like. But they're not stars at all, and they're, and they're in fact smaller than stars, smaller than planets. They're these tiny little rocks drifting out there in space, but because they were so far away and so teeny tiny, they looked like tiny points of light out there, and so, so we called, called them asteroids, you know, and, which means star-like. And so, you know, you talk about shooting stars or falling stars, I, I'm assuming being my producer, you knew that they weren't actually stars falling from the sky, but that's what they look like when we see them in the sky. And indeed, even now, we say that I'm going to watch a sunrise. The sun is starting to set. The sun is rising. The sun isn't actually, this is just our perspective on a planet that is uh, rotating and orbiting around the sun and traveling incredibly quickly but it's still within our language. We don't say the Earth is rotating into, like, face the sun. And so that's, you know, that's very interesting that we still, hundreds of years later, we still haven't uh, evolved to see all that. But I, you know, I've, I've gotten chills just in this conversation in talking about it because the, the seeing the universe as it truly is, which, which people even in major cities were seeing when, when the sun went down hundreds of years ago before the invention of electricity seeing all that is it's kind of a transcendent experience Mm -hmm. it's kind of even a dare i say it a spiritual experience and so the catholic church did not operate under hundreds of years ago didn't operate under this model of don't look at the night sky bury your head in the sand don't study astronomy we'll tell you everything you need to know just close your minds and be obedient little slaves to us it was it was quite the opposite it was hey, we don't know everything about the cosmos, but we know a lot about the cosmos. And it was uh, created by the Lord God Almighty. And by studying it, you, can, you too can grasp the... how you, you, can, you too can grasp just how amazing the universe is. And if you want to become a priest, if you want to serve the church, then you first have to study the motions of the heavens because... God is up there in the heavens, and God created the heavens. And you can get a sense of just how vast God's creation is by staring up at the heavens. And by the way, even to this day, that view uh, with the Catholic Church and Catholic Church leadership has not necessarily changed. Of course, Catholics uh, came to admit that, yes, indeed, the Earth does go around the sun, and the heliocentric Copernican model of the cosmos is indeed very much the way the way the universe works. So they, they came around to that idea, but 
there are still astronomers within the Catholic Church. There are still observatories within the Catholic Church, and it's still seen that way. And honestly, I I have no problem with that. You know, we could we could talk uh, religion and philosophy and spirituality and get go down a, a deep rabbit hole in that conversation. But if the Catholic Church wants to say, hey, study astronomy because it's a transcendent experience and it you know makes you understand things about the universe that get you beyond your day-to-day uh, life and your day-to-day problems and affairs and like what's going on in your city or your country, I think that's great. So speaking of the, the glories of the Catholic Church, <laughs> I wanted to, I think we've talked about this before, but just want to hit it on the, the head because we, you and I had in private have talked about this, but the idea of the Gregorian calendar and how we as a society to try to cleanse religion out of science have changed from using BC to BCE. And it's, it's very strange to me because all of those discoveries were made by the church. And we right. wouldn't have the system the the calendar system that we have now without the explicit interest and curiosity of those within the church correct and interestingly enough one of our previous after talks you you brought this okay but but you brought it up interestingly enough here i am criticizing neil degrasse tyson neil degrasse tyson as an atheist, as a strong critic of uh, religion and religious ideology and dogma, has brought up that he still uses B.C. and A.D., even though secular academic institutions have shifted over to, uh, let me see, it's B.C.E., which stands for Before the Common Error, Era, <laughs> Before the Common Error, <laughs> um, Era. And then it's after Dominion? No, that was the original. CE, which, is, era. which yeah. is the common era. Yeah. It was funny, actually, when this shift happened, I think I was in middle school or high school, and some girl, like, raised her hand. And to me, I, th- I think the, the teacher in the classroom thought she was being a little ditzy, but I thought it was an interesting question. She raised her hand and she was like, will, will they ever shift over to ACE after the common era? <laughs> and the teacher like kind of rolled her eyes and was like, no, no, it's just this way. Well, after Jesus comes back. Yeah, after Jesus comes back. Well, see, the funny thing is now I'm thinking about, we've, I think, spoken a little on the singularity Ray Kurzweil's idea mm-hmm. of the singularity when artificial intelligence begins aiding in humanity's evolution. We might very well look at this as, you know, after the common era when, when AI uh, plays a paradigm-shifting role in our lives. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I was going to say that I wanted to bring up in this podcast, without getting us off on too much of another tangent, mm-hmm. is this notion that it gave me goosebumps, reading about and putting myself into the headspace of these historical figures because you have this guy, Copernicus, clearly very brilliant, clearly onto something, thinking about his conception of the universe and saying, 
I think I know how it all works. And I think everybody else has got it wrong. And in order for people to be persuaded to agree with me, you have to essentially flush all of existing science and physics as we know it down the toilet and just say everything that you believed that you knew about the universe is fundamentally flawed and wrong. And yes, I know we've been teaching this for a thousand years. I know that's that's something that we're very committed to, and I know it's something that's supported by the Bible and the Catholic Church, but I think we just got it wrong all this time. And if we can just kind of admit that we, we've fucked up, then maybe we can truly find out how the universe works. And that's a tall order to fill. And Copernicus knew that that was a tall order. And he knew that there would be a lot of people that would say, are you nuts? Are you really even suggesting this? This is so ludicrous. And of course, Copernicus was at a disadvantage because he didn't have any new evidence. He just worked out the math and said, how would the math work if all these uh, planets were going around the sun instead of going around the earth? Mm. And The interesting thing about that is me, as someone who struggles with math, I I look at uh, advanced mathematics that quantum physicists and brilliant theoretical physicists do, and to me, it's it's all magic. You know, Arthur C. Clarke, the famous science fiction author, said that any... He actually said, if I'm remembering correctly, that any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Mm. Now, math, I wouldn't say is technological, but it's definitely an intellectual exercise that is is very advanced when you get into really advanced mathematics, like calculus, which which you mentioned that you were studying, or trigonometry, or, or whatever, or in my case, algebra. Algebra was baffling uh, when I studied it in high school. And so for me, I, I see a lot of it, and I see pages of equations, or a giant chalkboard full of equations, and I think to myself, there's got to be some empirical evidence to support all of that. But in reality, what you have is uh, the system of epicycles that Ptolemy worked out, which have a lot of advanced mathematics to back them up mm. because in order to in order to mentally and mathematically construct a model of the universe where all the planets are spinning around the earth you have to come up with some really challenging and advanced mathematics and copernicus his whole idea was like there's got to be a simpler way. There's got to like this is way too insane. Yeah. This is way too complex. But of course, how many people would look at myself included? How many people would look at astronomy and you know equations regarding black holes or the big big bang cosmology and say, "Wow, this is way too complex. Surely there's a simpler way." And a lot of theoretical physicists would roll their eyes and say, "Well, maybe you're just a dumbass. Maybe you're not smart enough to really see how it all fits together." And so, despite the fact that the Ptolemy's model of, uh, I was going to say his model of the solar system, but it wouldn't be right to call it a solar system because the solar system <laughs> is predicated on a sun that everything else goes around, but a uh, planetary motion, we'll say, because he believed the planets were in motion around the Earth, uh, that that whole model 
involved a lot of advanced mathematics, and it worked pretty well in saying we can say exactly where in the night sky Mars is going to be, or where Venus is going to be, and we know where they're going to move and how they're going to move and where they're going to be at a certain date and time. And that's one of the hallmarks of science, is that it's observable and predictable. And that was why Galileo was considered to be the father of science in many respects, is because he took observation to a whole new level because there wasn't much new to observe in astronomy during the days of Copernicus. We had we had observed it all. We were predicting it accurately for the most part. And, you know, there were, there were events in astronomy, like a comet would come by and people would, or, you know, supernova or something, and people would be like, whoa, that's really anomalous. That's really, f- that's freaky and weird. But for the most part, we had the heavens down. And that's why people ascribed this religious significance to the heavens, because they said God made the heavens orderly and mm. mathematical. And now, you know, we're, uh, this is a, a quote in the podcast, uh, I believe, I want to say it was Kepler, but it might have been someone else talking about reading the mind of God, because they, they really thought that that was the way they conceived of it. And so, Basically, what I'm saying is it's it's disturbing to me as someone who doesn't understand math very well to look at uh, Ptolemy's epicycles and realize that there was a lot of uh, accurate mathematical calculation that went into it, or, or a lot of precise mathematical calculation that, that went into it that simply wasn't accurate. I have a, uh, a friend of mine who I'm trying to convince to be a guest on our podcast. He worked on the curiosity rover that is on the planet mars right now and i was uh i was stacking chairs with him in a meeting hall the other day and we were we we're stacking a bunch of chairs and he said no he says you have to look at the the floor plan you have to look at this little diagram to see just how many stairs we need to or stairs chairs excuse me how many chairs we need to, to stack and there was a row of of chairs that had 14 chairs rather than 12 chairs and the guy was looking at it and he, he was like i think these are these are pretty straight this looks right and this uh, this wonderful guy who had a sense of humor and was an engineer looked at the i guess the floor plan or whatever we we're working on and saw that it had the wrong number of chairs and he said i i'm paraphrasing i don't know if i'm quoting him exactly but it just was really amusing to me that he says that's what we call precise but not accurate. Mm. Yeah, there it, that in the scientific community and in the engineering community, there is a big, uh, there is an emphasis on those two things: the difference between precise and accuracy. So, I mean, to me, it was just it was striking to think that here's a mathematical model of the universe that accurately predicts the motions of the heavens it's completely wrong but it's uh it's very scientific very well it's like uh when you're a child and your understanding of how the world works and then when you get older and your understanding of how the world works you know like you you i don't know if you grow up in a, a stable home you just believe that everyone grows up with a mother and a father they get along they love each other and that's how everyone grows up and so that's how you address everyone is that they live that life. And then you have, and that's a model that, that if you grow up in a relatively normal area that isn't in not a crazy family, then you can kind of 
associate that with everyone that you're surrounded by. But then you go out there in the world and you get older and you start meeting people that live tumultuous lives and you're like, oh, wow, that's life too. I think it's a little bit like Plato's allegory of the cave. Yeah. Yeah. In that one day you leave the cave yeah. and, and people live in different caves and some of the, you know, cave being an analogy for the family that we grew up in. Or, or a scientific thought. We'll, we'll take it back to what we're... Or being a scientific thought. But, you know, right or wrong, some people lived in some pretty messed up caves. Yeah. And then they, they step out of them one day and they go, oh, whoa, that's... Things are completely different. Yeah. Out in the sunlight. And to Copernicus... To his credit, he got out of the cave and he did exactly as the model of that story where he went back to the cave to try to educate everyone else that was stuck inside of what was on the outside world, you know? Profound. Yeah. Very profound. Um, you, you know what I was going to say, just, to, yeah. just on a final note, connecting to that thought, was that it really made me wonder... Are we at a time in uh, modern physics and astronomy where we could be on the precipice of another great paradigm shift mm. where everything's going to change yet again? And then people 500 years from now might look back on us and say, oh, wow, there was so much that those dummies got wrong. Mm. And thank you know. Thankfully, we know far more than those primitive ancient peoples back in the year 2018. I, I'm not making this prediction. I'm not saying that that's the case. But I think we all need to be willing to look at our realities in that way, to be willing to look at our personal lives, to be able to look at current events, to be able to look at history, to be able to look at, indeed, even modern science and astronomy and physics and say, is it possible that is it possible that we've got this wrong? Is there another way to look at it and perceive it? Because the most brilliant people in history always did that, from Copernicus to Albert Einstein. The most brilliant people in history always did that. Now, we get into conspiracy theory, theorist territory when we start to say, because brilliant people found out that our conception of the universe was wrong in the past, that must mean our perception of the universe in the present is completely wrong and, and totally, totally, completely false. That may not be true either. And we might be, we actually might be at the opposite end. We might be very close to a profound breakthrough, and I don't want to discount that possibility either so reason is worth more than power yes the the latin ladies and gentlemen the latin motto of the university that copernicus went to and my producer wrote it down in his notes so kudos to you <laughs> the one thing that i wanted and this takes us back a few clicks and what you were talking about but we talk about how science then was observable and that was the science where where the the crucial factor of that is the fact that it's observable repeat repeatable and testable and and that it, when theories are provided that they aren't immediately shut down as they were then but they are tested and and scrubbed through to try to find the errors in the way and then if they are found to not have errors and are able to be repeated 
in multiple trials, then they are inducted as new as doctrine, you know. Yeah, and and so one of the things that one of the things that I would say about that is what we're talking about. It's it's very difficult to talk about science in this historical context because we're talking about what was it called? The scientific revolution mm-hmm. was how it was described. Right. And just being at the very beginning of the scientific revolution and Galileo sort of taking it all the way, taking it over the precipice. Galileo was very much the tipping point for this scientific revolution, even though the seeds have been planted by men like Copernicus. And so, by the way, a lot of, uh, a lot of the critics that I saw of Neil deGrasse Tyson's portrayal of Giordano Bruno say that people falsely put Bruno into the category of people like Copernicus and Galileo in saying that he was someone who was part of that scientific revolution, that he was very much marching lockstep along, uh, alongside other martyrs for science mm-hmm. in bringing about this new scientific revolution and that the reality was that he was not. Well, that's like saying Alex Jones is bringing apart the new... <laughs> The new political revolution of, you know. Yeah, I, I would describe Bruno as a bit like a like an Alex Jones type character. Um, but of course, Alex Jones has the right to say and think whatever he wants. And Giordano Bruno should have had the right to say exactly. and think and speak whatever, whatever he wanted also. But yeah, the, the, the scientific revolution is this incredible moment in history. And Galileo is called the father of modern science because modern science is... Everything that came after Galileo is profoundly different in terms of science than everything that came before. And in all fairness to the people who lived in in that era, astronomy... There are only so many observations you can make with astronomy with the naked eye. So Galileo's telescope allowed us to take that next leap where we could make far more detailed observations of the cosmos. And that was what Copernicus's anxiety about his his book and his manuscript was that he had no new observations. And from a standpoint of science, that would have been important for Copernicus to say, oh, well, this all really supports what I've been saying. But Copernicus said, well, I've done the math but there's no new, new observation, so why should anybody take me seriously? Galileo actually, you know, crossed the Rubicon and was able to say, I'm making observations now, and you can see what I'm observing for yourself. And in a letter to the Grand Duchess, Madame Christine, I think is was her name, he, he says, a lot of people criticized me without taking the time for themselves to just go to just go and pick up a telescope and look for themselves. And he said if they had just bothered to get up off their ass and take a look at the things that I'm talking about in this book that I just published, maybe they wouldn't have been quite so harsh cuz maybe they'd have seen how wrong they were. Mm. Yeah. That's that's analogous to now too. There are a lot of corollaries there to a lot of things that are going on where you could say that. Um, interesting thing that I thought of was the importance that 
lens making had at this time for these discoveries to be made. Oh yeah. Um, the current topic of uh, my my math class because we're rounding the corner before I start calculus is um, there are these equations essentially that that set up they look like parabolas but they're they mirror each other and inside of the parabolas are these focal points and those are how lenses are determined what their strength and everything is because of these focal points okay um all that's my personal information aside the the it's always been really difficult for me to be able to wrap my head around the idea that you take a, a clear piece of glass and then you shape it so that it's curved and you do that enough times and you layer enough of those together and you can see the surface of the moon or you can see distant planets all because of this basically melted sand. You know, you take silica, you melt it down right. and then you get it perfect and you shape it just the right way and you it it opens it literally is a lens to the universe it's crazy to me yeah and in in sort of an inverse way i don't know if i'm using the word inverse right but in, in sort of the the opposite way microscopes yeah which are something that came about relatively close around the same ter- period of time allow us to see an entire universe that is quite different from the one we experience now, this microscopic world mm-hmm. that exists. And that was just as surprising as and just as striking. I think that uh, Christian Huygens, who I want to say was Dutch, and he was looking at things through, I guess you would say a microscope, but it was a very primitive invention, just as primitive as Galileo's telescope. super magnifying glass. Yeah, and he saw these microscopic animals, which he called animalcules, and saw these funny little things swimming around in in a cup of water, and this this realization that there's a universe of the very small and a universe of the very large and very vast. And even today, we're being challenged by that, by those those two different universes, mm-hmm. those two profoundly different, you know, the science of the very small, quantum physics, and the science of the very large, which is general relativity and all sorts of other theoretical physics. So I bring up the lens for the telescope to bring it to ask what you think the next thing is that's going to because essentially <laughs> the lens really kicked in the door for yeah. astronomy and really blew it off the the hinges the hinges and um i mean my my thought on it is is that we're gonna have to get people on mars and that's gonna change That'll change astronomy. That'll change right. change all the way human beings perceive space. Because we have people in space right now on the space station. But that isn't enough to get people excited about it. Enough to swoon public support for people to want to put more money towards that effort. Yeah, people have been traveling into low Earth orbit for a long, long, long time. 
So ultimately, there's nothing that impressive to the general public about traveling around in low Earth orbit, even though the International Space Station, it's the largest construction we've ever made in outer space. It's the size of a football field. It's a very impressive feat of engineering, and I don't want to downplay that. But yeah, I, I think you're right to some extent. I don't know. The telescope was just such a game changer. So I don't truly know. It's a great question, but I don't truly know what the next game changer would be in astronomy. People on Mars, that would certainly be a big one. And we're going to we're going to tackle Mars as a planet and Mars as a destination for human exploration very soon, within the next couple of episodes. We are going to tackle it in making an episode about it. Kind of yes, like we're not like, going to Mars. Like, like as a country, soon <laughs> we're going to go to Mars. Well, hey. Uh, Hopefully. Within our lifetimes, I think the first human beings will set foot on Mars. But if you really want to talk about a game changer in astronomy... I would think even, I want to think even bigger than that and say that interstellar travel, that travel to the nearby stars, like callback, Alpha Centauri, that's going to be something that's, that's going to be really tremendous. And the United States Navy looked at the idea of a, a mission to the nearby stars and something that I think was called Project Longshot, which would have been an unmanned robotic probe don't tell warner von braun <laughs> but uh there was there was that there was project daedalus which was a spacecraft also a robotic probe uh, con- uh conceived of by i want to say that it was the british interplanetary society that came up with the idea of a fusion powered engine that would send human beings to the stars and so there are ideas, and uh, one of these, Project Daedalus, is talked about in Carl Sagan's Cosmos in his 1980 television television program. And uh, there are other ideas to get human beings to the stars, and one of them we're going to be tackling in our next episode about the military's involvement in the United States space program because the military had a lot of interesting ideas for space travel. And going to a nearby star system, that I think is truly a game changer because traversing distances of light years, that's something that that gets to be very tricky because even if we look at uh, Alpha Centauri through a telescope, we're seeing it as it looked a couple of years ago. We're not seeing things in the universe as they are now. We're seeing, you know, uh, Carl Sagan famously said, you cannot look out into space without looking back into time. That's that's the, the measurement of light years. It's the distance that it takes for light to travel in a single year. So when you look at something a thousand light years away, well, that's the way the star looked a thousand light years ago. Uh, it's certainly possible that hundreds of years ago that star went supernova and exploded mm-hmm. or ceased to exist. Right. Or, you know, we talked about Dyson spheres, this theoretical idea of extraterrestrials building this big shell of solar panels to harvest a star's energy and cut off all of its light. That could have happened hundreds of years ago too, but it's going to take a lot of time for us to see 
these new changes in the cosmos. And if you're talking about something that's, if you're talking about something that's two million light years away, that's two million years ago what it looked like. So we're really we're really getting information that is terribly outdated. If we can travel to the stars, if we can evil even travel to the nearby stars, that's going to be a game changer on par with the telescope. And I say we, I mean at the very least, robotic probes, at the very most, uh, human beings personally going out along on the journey. Very. So I just had a couple interesting, I guess, I wasn't, I'm not looking for more of like a huge explanation, but these were just cool facts. You trying to stop me on go- going off on a monologue or a tangent? No, no, because I, I, there were just these small little facts that you threw out that I thought were really fascinating. Um, that the study of the tides was one of the the, the, the very important ways in which yeah. they were able to prove that the moon was revolving around the Earth. Um, and and actually, Galileo was not helpful at all in that exercise because Galileo genuinely believed that the tides were evidence that the earth was spinning super fast and hurtling through space and that because we were moving so incredibly fast, the water in the world's oceans just kept sloshing around as we hurtled through the cosmos. So he turned out to be wrong, but one of the things that I pointed out in the episode is, is again, I could say Galileo turned out to be wrong, and if you were a big fan of Galileo, you could say to me, well, he lived hundreds of years ago. Hindsight is twenty twenty. Or in this case, sixteen twenty. <laughs> See what I did there. <laughs> but you you could say that and say, well, how could he have possibly known? It was a more primitive time. But there were a lot of people, a lot of brilliant minds, saying it seems like there's a correlation between the phases of the moon and the tides. And it seems like, even if they didn't really know what was going on, it said seems like there's definitely a correlation. Something going on with the moon. Something going on with the tides. The moon is the culprit here. And Galileo was like, no, no, has nothing to do with that. We're just flying through space so fast, everything's sloshing around. And so that, that was what Galileo thought. And so, but, you know, again, it's, it's very difficult to conceive of the universe when you start asking those questions and saying, what are, you know, again, observation, right? Without a microscope, without a telescope, without Sir Isaac Newton's laws of motion, without ideas about gravity, how can you really tell? what's going on just by using your own senses. That's why science is as modern as it is today is because we have instruments that extend our senses like the telescope, like the microscope, like uh, particle accelerators or any number of other things that, that you could add to the list is that we're able to, because in the scope of our own senses, we're very limited in what we can see and feel and perceive. And if, if we're just using that, we're often going to get it, it wrong. I tell people all the time that memory is so subjective. And that's something that I've been pondering lately is that your memory of events that happened 10 years ago, some of it might be right, some of it might be wrong. Things change over time. Don't think that your memory, that law enforcement is getting into this with eyewitness testimony and saying that eyewitness testimony is not 100% reliable. 
So our senses are very limited. And if that's all you had, which is that's practically all you had, you go back 500 years, there's only so much you can discern about the world around you. But you start develop, developing instruments like the telescope. Again, Galileo, father of modern science. You start really being able to extend those senses and uh, you can see a lot more. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other ones that it was just an interesting factoid that may need a little bit of an explanation is that a thousand Earths will fit into Jupiter, but Jupiter is only 318 times more massive. Yes. Meaning that in size, if you were to put Earth next to Jupiter, it would be a thousand. There would be a thousand. Giant. But because of because Jupiter's less dense, so there's less to it. Like it's more porous, if you will, if you want to think of it that way, like yes. a sponge. Just a big ball of gas. Then it only weighs that there. It would only take three hundred eighteen Earths to equate the the two of them. Yeah. Well, if Jupiter were a rocky planet, right? right. So, I am not a physics major. Ladies and gentlemen, I think uh, comedian Bill Hicks has a really great skit where he says that he's like, I was I was making fun of uh, Christians in one of these uh, skits that I that I gave in a, in a southern state. And some some guy come up, came up to me and he pushed me. He put his hands on me and he pushed me. And he said, hey, you come here, come here. And he kept pushing me. And I was like, why is he saying come here? He definitely wasn't a physics major. <laughs> but what i was gonna say i'm definitely not a physics major but what i what i would say is that that's an interesting thing to think of when we start talking about density versus size because we can all look at an object in the room and say well that's a lot bigger you know the table's a lot bigger than the queen size bed in the guest bedroom But when we start talking about what's more dense, that becomes a little bit trickier. But in a nutshell, what I would say is the rocky planets like Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, Pluto, even though the International Astronomical Union doesn't consider Pluto to be a planet, we're going to tackle that in an episode coming up as well because there are a lot of fans of Pluto out there, and I do not want to disappoint them. Pluto (laughs) is going to get its own episode. Anyway, uh... Rocky planets are, are these very solid, very dense uh, bodies, and the Earth is a rocky planet. But the gas giants, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, Neptune, are it's mostly hydrogen and helium gas, mostly clouds. So they're not very dense. And this is a strange fact that I heard as a child, that Saturn is actually sort of the least dense of them all. Hmm. And if you had a bathtub large enough filled with water or a swimming pool large enough and you placed Saturn in it, Saturn would float Hmm. because Saturn is not dense enough to sink to the bottom of your imaginary gigantic swimming pool. Interesting. So, yeah, that's that's the physics of it. But Jupiter is just ridiculously enormous. Yeah. And then lastly, uh, the biblical story of when the sun stopped in the middle of the sky, going have historians and scientists been able to go back and figure out if that was some sort of an astrological event that occurred or 
that it was just hyperbole written in the Bible. You know, uh, I'd like to say that there's some astronomical event that occurred long ago that lends credence to the story of, I want to say that we said it was Joshua. I feel bad. I don't know. I, I'm I'm not good with my Old Testament scholarship. You ask me about the New Testament, I'd probably be able to tell you more. But the Old Testament, I, I don't, my answer to you, the short answer is I don't think so. And I would go further than that in saying there was a post circulating around on social media that was very interesting where they're like, scientists at NASA were trying to compile a calendar of the universe and they found that there was 24 hours missing somewhere in the calendar and that got debunked very heavily where they were like, there was actually no real you know, truth to this. Mm-hmm. And if you, if you believe in the Old Testament or indeed the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's a matter of faith and it's also a matter of whether you take it literally or figuratively so so that's a factor but it it gets it touches very much on the kind of conversations that Galileo was having with people that he encountered and people he encountered said said your views contradict the bible and he said no he says i think people just don't fully understand how to interpret the bible and there's a even today a, a scholarly school of thought and people who are biblical scholars and people who study the Bible and say, well, there are two schools of thought, right? The fundamentalist young earth creationists who say the earth is 6,000 years old. Well, do you think it could be a little bit older? No, it couldn't be older because the Bible says the earth is 6,000 years old. But interestingly enough, the Bible doesn't actually explicitly say the earth is 6,000 years old. But fundamentalists say, oh, the Bible says it, so we have to believe it. Well, the Bible doesn't say it. What the Bible does is gives you uh, seven days of creation, and on the seventh day, God rests, and gives you then Adam and Eve, and gives you a genealogy. This person beget that person who beget that person, and so they sort of calculated the genealogy, and I don't believe the genealogies, I might have to go back and read my book of Genesis again, but I don't think the genealogists say, and this person lived to be 65.5 years old, and then this person lived to be 98.2 years old, or this person lived to be 200. They were very old. No, they lived to, like, improbably old ages. Like, most of of them died at the age of, like, 800. Yeah, and so I'm I'm familiar with that, but I don't know that everybody's age was given in those genealogies. That's what I mean. But but they were, yes, and, and you're correct to say that in the Genesis timeline after Adam and Eve, you have people living to, like you said, improbably old ages. And I think there's even... Uh, among people who are devout Christians, there's this notion that uh, at least around the time of Noah's flood, that then God said, all right, that's it. You guys aren't doing enough with your lives. 800 years is too much. I'm limiting your age to around 130. Nobody's going to be older than 130. But what I'm what I'm saying is people people are doing their own mathematical calculations. I would actually, I would say that this is the conservative evangelical Christian equivalent of Ptolemy's mathematical epicycles and that they're saying, well, I worked out all the math and this is the numbers and this is how old the earth is. And it's like, well, okay, but the Bible doesn't actually say the earth is 6,000 years old. And then you get into what 
what Galileo and, and later scholars were sort of suggesting was that if you believe that, you know, and some people are atheists, some people do not believe this. I will, I will admit this, that some people aren't on board with this. They, they think this is all Bronze Age fairy tales, and it's ridiculous that we've spent this amount of time even talking about it or entertaining it. I get that we have listeners out there that feel that way and want to acknowledge that. More power to you. But this is something that people all, you know, in the Western civilization have been struggling with for hundreds of years. So I think it's it's worthy of conversation. Plus, you shouldn't just shut it down because it's a discussion. This should be something you should be open to because as a society, we're really bad at turning off on stuff that we don't want to hear. And I think that that's kind of an ethos that we want to try to influence in the show is that to, to open your ears to even things that you probably would improbably listen to like we're learning from this episode that there are there there could be kernels of truth in there that you could get and use in your own life yeah and and so what i was well said what i was going to say is that you have this this school of thought among scholars saying again if you believe god exists and that god either wrote the bible or that god strongly influenced the authors of the Bible, there are those who have said, would it be useful for God in the Bible to go into science and to go into astronomy and and biology and all these things? Or would you just have a book that was written in a language that people 4,000 years ago could easily understand and easily, easily grasp? And so in that context, you wouldn't say at, I want to say it was the Battle of Gibeon, that you wouldn't say at this uh, at this battle, the Israelites were fighting their enemies, and God caused the rotation of the earth to temporarily halt in this miraculous supernatural feat. And because the earth is rotating whilst in orbit around the sun, uh, that God created caused the earth to halt. Follow me now. Caused the earth to halt, and it appeared as though the sun stayed stationary in the sky. But of course, the sun is never really technically moving to begin with. That the earth It's actually the earth that is moving around the sun. But it appeared from the vantage point of Joshua in the Battle of Gibeon that it, uh, you know. And so you get into some scholars legitimately hundreds of years ago and to this day say that God or the divinely inspired authors of the book, the Bible, wrote it and constructed it in such a way that it would just be readable and accessible to the common man and it would be a record of the events that supposedly happened and that it wouldn't become a science or astronomy textbook. Now, that being said, you're getting me off on all kinds of tangents. I know it was supposed to be a, a short note. I know we're probably yeah. at, the, at the point where we'll wrap up this after talk. Yeah. But I recently discovered that this is what is at the core of flat earth ideology. And it took me a long time to really get to the bottom of it because you asked me a question during one of our private conversations a long time ago. You said, and it's the most logical question, you said, so why do they believe that all the governments of the earth are conspiring to cover up the fact that the world is round? Why not just admit that the earth is is flat. Why create this elaborate hoax spanning hundreds of years purporting to uh, suggest that the Earth is round? And what it is, and some 
watch some flat earth conference video. I'm not a flat earther. Just want to say that uh, for everybody. I think you would, you'd be hard pressed to get this far into the series and think that I was, but I just want to (laughs) state that for the record. But I, I love as a, as a mental exercise, I love going down that, that road and saying, what if I am wrong? What if I'm wrong about everything that I know about the universe? This goes back to what we were talking about with Copernicus is let's just as a thought experiment, let's watch some flat earth videos on uh, on YouTube and just see where it goes from here. And so I haven't been persuaded by any by any stretch, but somebody during one of these conferences and they have conferences where you have 100 or 200 people in uh some sort of uh, meeting hall at the Ramada or at the Holiday Inn, people who have come from all around the country and someone giving a big PowerPoint presentation who's a very charismatic and persuasive public speaker. And so he gets to the end of providing all these flat earth proofs. And he said, well, he said, he said, if evolution is true, if you believe all that stuff about evolutionary biology, and of course what he was implying was that evolution wasn't true. He's like, if evolution isn't true, and all this stuff about astronomy and and the round spherical Earth going around the sun, if that isn't true, if the Earth really is the center of the universe, if we really are unmoving and stationary, if the heavens really are the realm of God and everything that is divine, and he says, and if that really is empirically provable, and if that's really the universe that we live in, then it's so obvious that God exists that uh, all the powers that be, you know, have to kind of just make that admission and that all these nefarious and evil satanic influences would have a, a much easier time controlling us if we could just believe that we live in this universe that's 13 billion years old where we evolved from microorganisms and, and yada, 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 yada. Very interesting that that was most Flat Earth videos on YouTube won't actually reinforce that point. But there is some pseudo-religious thing going on that I, I thought was was very, uh, very strange and very fascinating. Of course, there are a lot of uh, people out there who are religious and who are Christian who still, to this day, in 2018, look towards the heavens and gaze upon the infinite on a clear night with minimal light pollution and have that transcendent experience and truly do wonder about the divine. And so I have have never felt that that anything is is sacrificed from, you know, people who are spiritual, people who believe in God or Christianity or what have you, if you believe that the earth goes around the sun and that we are not the center of the universe that you know that actually the universe turns out as it turns out is a lot bigger and a lot more uh humbling than anyone could have ever imagined and on a side note i know of uh, nothing in modern astronomy that has lent uh that has, has proven to be some sort of empirical evidence for the Battle of Gibeon and the sun standing still in the sky. Mm-hmm. As far as I know, that's, that's not out there. I might do some research for our next episode. But interestingly enough, during the crucifixion of Christ, there's a passage that talks about in the gospel accounts of the sun going dark and darkness fell over the face of the earth, even though it was the middle of the afternoon when Christ was being crucified. So... 
that was something that was that most ancient historians and scholars said, well, there might have been someone named Jesus, and he certainly might have been crucified because the Roman Emperor, the Roman Empire crucified a lot of people. But this bit uh, here is just hyperbole that because we all know that the earth, uh, that it never goes dark. It never, nighttime never comes in the middle of the day for no apparent reason. That's just silly. That's just ridiculous. And some people wound back the clock and they said, well, well, it, it does go dark when you're in the path of totality during a solar eclipse. And they wound back the clock and they found like, so were there any solar eclipses 2000 years ago? And they looked at it and they're like, well, yeah, there were, yeah, sure, sure, there were a few. And they're like, well, where would they have been visible from? And when would they have been visible? And from what areas? And they're, and they're like, well, is it possible that there was a solar eclipse around this time? And they, they looked and they're like, oh, shit. Yeah. Yeah. It's possible that these people witnessed an eclipse. And if you were living 2,000 years ago and you were already inclined to be superstitious and there was an eclipse taking place you would probably go, oh, no, we've made an enormous mistake. I think they said it would have been within, like, a day or two range, too. Yeah, I would I would have to look at it. Of course, if you're a skeptic, of course, if you believe that Jesus is not even a historical figure and just an invention of someone who's just a really talented author or storyteller, if you, if you believe that, then you would say, no, 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 no. There was no, uh, there was no Jesus. There was no crucifixion. There was no eclipse. But uh, I, I would say, uh, if you're trying to be open-minded, if you don't have an ideological axe to grind like Neil deGrasse Tyson, if you if you want to just say, hey, I don't know what I believe or don't believe, but I want to look at things with an open mind and be as objective as I can be and as unbiased as I can be, then I I think there's a there's a good chance that someone uh, named Jesus was crucified by the Roman Empire, and around that time there was an eclipse, and people probably freaked out about it uh, at at the time. And so, what you have, historians believe a lot of the things, even uh, mythology like Homer's Iliad and Odyssey. A lot of the things that people wrote down in texts that are thousands of years old, there's history in there. Is it always a hundred percent accurate? No, it's not always a hundred percent accurate. But often there's actual history and actual world events being written about in those texts. And we would be, I think we'd be a little foolish if we were to dismiss everything that was written hundreds of years ago or thousands of years ago and say, ah, well, people were stupid back then, so that's got to be BS. Yeah. I think we, we hit a nerve, and that would be another great future project, uh, Astronomy and the Bible. Astronomy in the Bible. Oh, might be a little controversial, but I think we could we could tackle it. Unfortunately, I don't think it will be out by this uh, this December or this Christmas. But maybe we can think about it for future episodes. Well, it doesn't need to be something about. I mean, there are so many things that maybe that, we can tackle it by Easter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there are so many corollary events that also involve astronomy that would be fascinating to take a modern look at i think ancient history and astronomy yeah people you know and and that's that's the thing about astronomy folks is that if if you have eyes you can look up into the sky if you can see and you can look up in the sky you can see astronomy transpiring 
If you look at the constellation Orion, which is one of the most recognizable constellations in the night sky because of Orion's belt, these three stars right in a row, Orion's belt, and uh, the star Betelgeuse just above them is this uh, red, reddish kind of colored star that could very well go supernova in, in the near future. And it could happen tomorrow night. And that's up there, like, right now. And you can take a look at it. You don't need a telescope. You don't need binoculars. It's there. How would we know if it went supernova? It would be tremendously bright in the night sky. It could be. It could end up being brighter than the full moon. It could be the visual spectacle of a lifetime. How long would it last for? I would have to do more research on that. I don't really know. But I'm just saying, we're looking at having, like, a year of day. No, well, I didn't say it would be as bright as the sun. I'm just saying it could be brighter than the full moon. And a little bit brighter than the full moon. Not <laughs> No, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a year year of day. But um we do know that like in human history, there have been events in human history and indeed in recorded history where people looked up at the night sky and said, Whoa, something is glowing way, way, way bright, and we didn't predict that and we didn't anticipate that. And we don't know what the hell is going on, but something has changed. And people recorded it and wrote it down, and I identified it. Mm. And so, you know, it could be tomorrow that something in our interstellar neighborhood changes, and our view of the cosmos might never be the same again. Yeah. Just a, an eternity of daylight. I don't think you have to worry about that. I don't think you have to worry about that. There, there was also a hoax circulating on NASA, not on NASA. There was a circs. There was a hoax circulating around the internet, attributing the information to NASA, that said, "This coming spring, we could have thirty-seven hours of night, or two weeks of night." As the Earth in a particular orbital pattern around the Sun, blah blah blah. No, that's 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 never going to happen. And anybody who's familiar with astronomy can say, no, no, that's not going to happen. I actually had one friend message me on Facebook. Was like, hey, bro, what do you think of this? Is like, no. you know a lot about space. Is this like they say we're going to have? They say we're going to have thirty nine hours of darkness. I'm like, no, don't worry, it's not going to happen. Are you sure, bro? I'm positive. Don't worry. It's not going to happen. That'll only happen if the sun decides to go on the darker side of the earth, the flat earth and hides there for that period of time before it comes back out. <laughs> and I had, uh, I, I read this. It was, it was like a collection of like people who didn't realize that their spouse or significant other was this ignorant until this particular moment <laughs> in their relationship. And it was these little personal anecdotes, these little stories and one of these guys was driving around with his girlfriend, and she said, look, you can see the moon. And her boyfriend said, yes, you can see the moon. And she said, but no, you're not supposed to be able to see the moon because it's daytime right now. And he says, there are lots of times when you can see the moon in the daytime. She said, yeah, but the sun is still out. The sun and the moon are out at the same time. And he's like, yeah, yes, the sun and the moon are out at the same time. She's like, yeah, but that can't happen because they're the same thing. And he looked at her. <laughs> and he said, 
what? And she's like, well, that can't happen because they're the same. He's like, no, they're not the same thing. And she's like, but no, it can't happen. He's like, it's happening. It happens a lot. It's not a big deal. And they're not the same thing. <laughs> so at night, the sun turns out the light. And it's just like a little light bulb that's up there in the sky. That was that was truly baffling. Yeah. <laughs> So what's next? What what can everyone look forward to for the next episode? Oh man, if you guys are following us and you're watching the episodes and the after talks and you've made it this far, I just have to say thank you so much for your support. Our next episode is going to be looking at the United States military's role in the space program. So we're going to be pivoting back to cold war era history and looking at like just about everything that we did was looking at in in our space race series our three-part space race series we were looking at civilian space agencies for lack of a better word the soviet union's space agency military and civilian technology kind of blended together and there were times when in our own space Agency within NASA, there have been times where the military side and the civilian side aren't always quite so clear. But NASA always tried to clearly state that they were a civilian space agency and tried to make it clear that they were exploring space for peaceful purposes. But the United States military, uh, and in particular the United States Air Force, took a strong interest in outer space, especially during the early days of the space race. So that's going to be our next episode, and it's going to be, we're going to be releasing these episodes fairly regularly, and it's going to be due out soon, and we might even give you a a little preview, just as we did with uh, The Heretic. And with that, here in America at least, we'd like to wish you a happy Thanksgiving tomorrow, and... uh... Yeah, enjoy your family. I think Thanksgiving will be just a couple of days. Well, no, tomorrow. You're right. It is. It will be tomorrow. Never mind. Yeah. Happy Thanksgiving, folks, and for those of us uh, in America. And, yeah, thank you so much for listening to uh, all of our tangents today. And, uh, yeah, we'll oh, see hey, you later. We don't say this enough. Um, if you like this and this is your jazz, make sure to share it with other people. We're trying to grow our network, and we want as many people to know about this as possible. Um, Also, if you go on our website, universeuniversity.space, we've opened up commenting. So if you have any thoughts or anything that you'd like to add to the episode, any clarifications or any corrections that you think you've found on our episodes, please drop them in the comments on there. And, uh, yeah. We also have a email uh, where you can email us, and uh, that'll be in the description. Yeah, that's that should be in uh, all of our descriptions. If you want to contact us via email, and if anybody is still curious about learning about the Apollo moon landings, if three episodes weren't enough content for you, and you're still curious, we just published a our first blog post where. We address moon landing conspiracy theories, and we uh, address the fact that, yeah, actually we did land on the moon. And if any of you out there are skeptical after our three-part series, you can read our, our very lengthy blog post where it's uh, 
well, not to toot my own horn, but I think it's the most comprehensive examination of moon landing conspiracy theories uh, ever, where we just tried to address everything. Every claim that people have made about the moon landing is there, or almost every every claim. So there's lots of good content on there, and we invite you to uh, hang around the website and explore a little bit. See you next time.